Well, back into Ruth again. It's great to see everyone this morning. All right, so Jesus is talking about truth, and he says, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. We're going to learn and revise some important truth that we've learned through the book of Ruth about the kinsman redeemer. So I'll pray. Father, I just thank you that you are a great God. I thank you that you are our kinsman redeemer. I thank you that you have become a man and you have not only been our kinsman, but also been our redeemer. You pay the price. You were the sacrifice for our sins and you were the God man who died in our place. And we just thank you for that and thank you that through you we have redemption and salvation and all the blessings we're going to learn about. Some we'll learn about today, plus more. And I just pray that you'll continue to help us to be grateful and to respond to your love with love. And we just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, last week we saw the exciting climax of this love story where Boaz redeemed Ruth and married her, but only after the nearer kinsman released his claim on Ruth. And we learn that, as indicated by the ten elders representing the Ten Commandments, the nearer kinsman is the law, and that's a really good picture or type. And the main application for ourselves was, until the nearer kinsman released his claim on Ruth, she could not belong to Boaz. In the same way, until the law released its claim on us, we could not belong to Jesus. And I just want to revise something we did last week. And that is how Jesus redeemed us from the law, how he revoked the claim the law had on us. So, and it's all about the transfer or imputation of righteousness. Jesus kept the law perfectly, the entire law. So Jesus fulfilled the law, and Jesus' perfect life was transferred to my account. And so when God looks at me, he sees a perfect life. He sees Jesus' life, but he sees me as having lived that life. And therefore, there's now no condemnation for me. Also, he paid the penalty for our sins. And this is my unrighteousness, my sin being placed or transferred to Jesus. And because Jesus now has my sin, he becomes guilty and he had to be punished, even though he'd done no wrong. So Jesus took my place. So we're going to finish the last half of chapter 4 and then finish with a prophetic overview of the entire book. So if you've been following along, We've talked about different ways that this foreshadows or depicts our salvation and also the plan of redemption overall. All right, let's read the chapter. We'll read the whole chapter to get the context. All right, so Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Come aside, friend, sit down here. So he came aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, Buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me, that I may know, for there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, On the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. And the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. 
You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was a custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything. One man took off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore the close relative said to Boaz, Buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal, and Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's, and all that was Kilon's, and all that was Marlon's, from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Marlon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And all the people who are at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, a Goel, a kinsman redeemer, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom, and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron, Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Aminadab, Aminadab begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon, and Salmon begot Boaz, and Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David, and that's King David. So let's jump in straight to verse 11 and the second part where we finished off last week. And the people, they've just said, we're witnesses, and basically they're blessing Boaz now. And so what they say is this in verse 11, The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrata and be famous in Bethlehem. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. So Ephrata is an old name for Bethlehem, so it's the same place. And Rachel and Leah, do you know about those two ladies? They are the wives of Jacob, yes. And they and their two servants, they had 13 children between them, 12 boys and one girl, and they were like the mothers of the whole nation of Israel. And so saying, may you be like Rachel and Leah, was a big blessing. And then what about Perez and Tamar? Well, you can read about him in Genesis 38, verse 27 and on. Uh, We're not going to go there. But just to summarize quickly, Perez's family line is honorable and numerous. Like, for example, Caleb. You know Joshua and Caleb? 
Caleb came from the line of Perez. And he is most likely the ancestor of the Bethlehemites in general. So his descendants are living in Bethlehem. And you can see First Chronicles chapter 2 for that. Now, it says, The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house. Coming to your house. Ruth is coming home. And that to me is just really beautiful. If you go back and look at how Ruth is described, she's always called, or usually called, Ruth the Moabitess. Ruth the cursed one. But not now. She's no longer a stranger. In the rest of the book, she's never again called Ruth the Moabitess because she's now been, if you want to say it this way, absorbed into the covering of Boaz, her kinsman redeemer. Now she is Ruth, the wife of Boaz. And she's celebrated and she's blessed and praised by all those around her. Her association or connection to the cursed land of Moab is gone. She went from being cursed to blessed. In the same way, we were cursed because of sin, but Christ delivered us from the curse, and now we are blessed. And we read about that in Galatians. I thought it might be good to read that. It's Galatians 3, verses 10 to 14. It says, But those who depend on the law to make them right with God are under his curse. For the scriptures say, Cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the commands that are written in God's book of the law. So it is clear that no one can be made right with God by trying to keep the law. For the scriptures say, It is through faith that a righteous person has life. This way of faith is very different from the way of law, which says, It is through obeying the law that a person has life. Verse 13, But Christ has rescued us from the curse pronounced by the law. When he was hung on the cross, he took upon himself the curse for our wrongdoing. For it is written in the scriptures, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. Through Christ Jesus, God has blessed the Gentiles with the same blessing he promised to Abraham, so that we who are believers might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Now, what is that blessing that God promised to Abraham? It's Genesis 15:6, And Abraham believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. So, we were cursed, but now we get to share in the blessing that God promised to Abraham, which is that we can be made righteous by faith. This means that all Abraham had to do to be saved was to believe that the coming Messiah would save him from his sins. Now, his repentance and genuine belief was demonstrated by his faith and obedience down the track. But he didn't have to do things to be saved. He was saved, and then he did the good things. So we demonstrate our faith by our works. But the faith comes first. We're going to come back to that point and look at that a bit deeper later on, but for now we'll just go through the story. Verse 13 in Ruth chapter 4. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a close relative, and may his name be famous in Israel. And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. 
So, this is the ladies saying to Naomi, wow, God's really blessed you. This is fantastic. Remember what happened to Naomi before? She left full from Israel. You know, she had a husband and two sons, but she came back empty. And now God is blessing her once again. Now, the women are saying to Naomi that Ruth is better than seven sons, and seven is like the number of perfection. And it's true. The words were kind of prophetic because out of Ruth's line came not only King David, but also the Messiah. So having Ruth in her family line would mean that the Messiah comes through her family line. So that's a huge blessing. So we talked about this in chapters 1 and 2. Naomi is like the prodigal daughter of the Old Testament. She leaves Bethlehem, suffers in the world, comes to her senses, and then comes back to Bethlehem. And what does God do? Like in the prodigal son, the father runs to meet the son. Well, God makes provision for Naomi. He restores what was hers. And that's what he'll do for us. If we fall away, we can come back. We might not understand the things we go through, but God has a plan and we need to learn to trust him. Now, remember Naomi's perspective back in Ruth chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. It says, The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has brought me home again empty. The Lord has testified against me. So Naomi had lost hope and had become bitter. She had the wrong perspective on life. But, you know, we do the same thing. When we go through hard times, guess what? Oh, this is all too hard. (laughs) The Lord has brought me home empty. The Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. The Lord has testified against me. What verse should we be thinking about? Romans 8.28 God has a plan. It's a perfect plan. What does it say? All things work together for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his purpose. So, Verse 17 in Ruth. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi, and they called his name Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now this is the genealogy of Perez, and I read those names before. Now, there's ten names there. Why do you think it's important that there's ten names? What significance is there that there's ten names? So, ten generations between the illegitimate son and the rightful king. Because Perez was illegitimate. Deuteronomy 23, verses 2 and 3. It says, No descendant of an illegitimate child could enter the tabernacle until ten generations has passed. Remember Judah and Tamar? Tamar was Judah's daughter-in-law, and she pretended to be a prostitute, and Judah went into her, and Perez is a result of that. And the story that you read that in is Genesis chapter 38. All right. Now, there is a son born to Naomi, and the son of Ruth and Boaz was named Obed, and he had a son named Jesse, and he had a son named David. And David had a descendant named, a bit further down the track, Jesus, yeah. Now, in verse 17, it also says the father of David. So Naomi's returned to Bethlehem, and the roots, you know, David's hometown being in Bethlehem, that all goes back to Ruth and Boaz, and that's why... Joseph and Mary had to go back to Bethlehem to register in the census of Augustus. Remember how they had to have the census and they had to go back to Bethlehem? So it all comes back to here. Ruth and Boaz 
are the reason why Jesus was born in Bethlehem, because that's their hometown. So, that's the end of the book, but we have some application. I'm going to go back to verse 11. So, Ruth 11, and it says, The woman coming into your house, I like to think of it as the woman who is becoming a part of your family. Now, what happens when a lady becomes a part of a family, like she marries a gentleman? Yeah, it changes her name. So no longer is she identified with her maiden name. She's got a new name. Well, Ruth has lost her maiden name, which is Ruth the Moabitess. That, that curse that kept following her around. And now she's Ruth, the wife of Boaz. She's a part of his family. So our new identity is in Christ. We have become his bride, adopted in his family. So these two words, in Christ, is really, really important. So we're going to look at what it means to be in Christ. So to being in Christ is a new identity. I've just went through the New Testament and looked up a lot of the in Christ verses, and I just picked out nine of them. I want to go through these benefits, and the purpose I'm going through these is that we can be encouraged and live in hope no matter what our circumstances might be. because. None of these benefits are earthly or physical benefits. They are all of heavenly origin, which means that no one can take them away from us. So what God gives, no one can take away. They are eternal. So the first one. Because I am in Christ, there is no condemnation. So it's Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus, who are in Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin, the law that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us, who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the Spirit. Now, I could have just read the first verse, it would have been enough, but I did the rest of it because it reminds us about what Christ has done for us and what we learned about last week. So the first bit there is, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The law used to condemn us because it, owned us okay but now it can't condemn us anymore because we don't belong to it anymore it has no more hold on us we went through that last week verse 2 in romans chapter 8 it says the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin which is the law as it went through last week as well we have power to live the christian life because we have the holy spirit living in us now how does he do this he gives us greater desires, more powerful desires to do what God wants, those desires are more powerful than the desires of the sinful nature. They're stronger than the desires of the sinful nature. And so obeying God becomes something we want to do, not something we have to do. So the desires of the sinful nature are still there, but the desires to obey God are just stronger, more powerful. And in verse 3, it says the law was unable to save us. And we've read about that. Ruth is a, a picture of this. The law is unable to save us. A nearer kinsman 
could not save Ruth. It didn't want to save Ruth. All the law can do is point out how sinful we are. Remember, it's a perfect mirror, but a mirror can't make you clean. Verse 3, it says that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We could not redeem ourselves. So only God could do this. Someone said we owed a debt we could not pay. He paid a debt he did not owe. It also says in verse 3, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. So because God paid our fine, died in our place, then I can be declared innocent. I'm no longer under condemnation. I'm free from the law, the condemnation of the law. And verse 4, it says, Now God's divine justice is fully satisfied. And that's really important. We are legally declared to be innocent. We have been justified. Now, justified means just if I'd never sinned. All my sins are paid for, even the ones I haven't committed yet. Divine justice is fully satisfied. So my sins, past, present, and future, the sins for every person who's ever lived, whoever will live, who is living, are all paid for, fully satisfied. All right. Now, the second is because I am in Christ, like Ruth, I not only have a new identity, but a new nature to match. And the verse there is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And it says, To the church of God which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. Now, if you know anything about the church of Corinth, it's a terrible church. There's problems and strife and arguments and sexual morality. And yet, what does God call them? Saints. Because they are in Christ, who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called saints. And so we need to learn to see ourselves the way God sees us, as perfected. Now, what does sanctified mean? It simply means that we are being changed to become like Jesus. We literally partake of the divine nature or become like God. We don't become God, we become like God. A good verse to explain this is Second Peter 1 verse 4. It says, And because of his glory and excellence, he has given us great and precious promises. These are the promises that enable you to share his divine nature and escape the world's corruption caused by human desires. That's uh, empowering us to overcome our human desires. So these promises enable you to share his divine nature. So what it means in practice is that we become like God in our character. We start to think like him, act like him, and love like him because we're becoming literally like him. Now, it also says, are sanctified. Now, this is confusing. I know myself that that work is still a process that is not finished yet. I'm still a work in progress. So why does it say are sanctified? Why is it in the past tense? Well, I think it's because God lives in eternity. He sees us as already being in heaven with him, already perfected, already sanctified. So because he's outside of time, he sees our entire life spread out before him, and he doesn't choose to focus on the bit where we're not sanctified. He focuses on here. Ah, yeah, Dave's already sanctified. He's perfect. He sees me as already perfect. So from our perspective, we are still being changed by God to become like him. But from God's perspective, we are already perfect. He already sees the end result. And that's how he sees us, and it's important we don't forget that. 
Now, we are called saints. Did you realize that every Christian is a saint? And the biblical definition of a saint is simply someone who is set apart for God's purposes to bring glory to God. And this is a bit of a tangent here, but I thought it would be good to go through. There's three stages to our redemption. They are justification, sanctification, and glorification. Justification is the penalty being paid. I'm no longer guilty before God. Sanctification is our old nature is done away with and we are transformed by God's Spirit to become like God. It starts the day we are saved and finishes the day we die. And glorification is when we received our new glorified bodies, our resurrection bodies. Now this is future. So justification, the penalty of sin, has been taken away. Sanctification, the power of sin, is broken and is being broken. And glorification, the curse of sin, will be reversed. And that's when we get our new bodies. And don't have to groan anymore, as Romans 8 says. Okay, the third one. Because I am in Christ, I have eternal life and will receive a resurrection body. So this is the third blessing of being in Christ. And the verse there is 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 52. But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to life forever, and those who are living will also be transformed. So metamorphosized, completely changed, like a caterpillar that makes a cocoon and emerges as a butterfly. So this old body is like the caterpillar, and our new body is like the butterfly. And the next one, because I am in Christ, I am a new creation. Second Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And from the New Living Translation says, This means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. So our past is history. We don't throw up anything in our past. We just look forward to a glorious future. And the fifth one, Because I am in Christ, I have liberty or freedom from the law. And the verse here is Galatians 2, 4-5. And it says, Even that question came up only because of some so-called believers there, false ones, really, who were secretly brought in. They sneaked in to spy on us and take away the freedom we have in Christ Jesus. They wanted to enslave us and force us to follow their Jewish regulations. But we refused to give in to them for a single moment. We wanted to preserve the truth of the gospel message for you. So, being in Christ Jesus means that we have freedom in Christ Jesus from having to keep the law. We don't have to do anything. All we need to do is keep our eyes on Jesus and do what he wants us to do and be what he wants us to be. And that's it. So, again, we don't have to do anything. Our salvation is already secure. All these blessings we're talking about are already given to us. We just need to follow Jesus. Keep our eyes on him. Enjoy our relationship with him. Number six. Because I am in Christ, every spiritual blessing is mine. That's Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. That's past tense, right? Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So there's nothing that we could want, or nothing that we actually need, that we haven't already received. Does that make sense? Everything that we need in Christ 
has already been given to us. And it's in the heavenly places. So these blessings are not physical or earthly. They're not of earthly origin, like money or health and stuff like that. Rather, they are spiritual or internal and have a heavenly origin. And as I mentioned before, God gives us gifts and blessings that the world can never, ever, ever, ever take away. So they are eternal and temporary. For example, we can experience God's love, joy and peace in our lives, no matter what our circumstances are. Now, does this mean that God won't look after our practical needs? No, because it says there in Matthew 6, 31-33, Therefore do not worry, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. So our job is to seek first the kingdom of God, and he'll give us the physical things that we need as we go. And remember, this is going back to Ruth going into Boaz's home. She's becoming like in Boaz. He spread the corner of his garment over her. The seventh one, because I am in Christ, I experience unlimited kindness and grace. And the verse there is Ephesians 2.7. It says that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So, there's nothing he won't do for us because he loves us. And the eighth one, because I am in Christ, I have a plan and purpose for my life. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And the last one, because I am in Christ, I have God's righteousness. And the verse there is Philippians 3.69 I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, self-righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I once thought these things, my self-righteousness, were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Yes, everything else is worthless when compared with the infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have discarded everything else, counting it all as garbage, so that I could gain Christ and become one with him. I no longer count on my own self-righteousness through obeying the law. Rather, I become righteous with God's righteousness through faith in Christ. For God's way of making us right with himself depends on faith. So my self-righteousness is my own goodness, based on my own self-effort in trying to be good, to do good things. It's me doing my best to keep various rules and regulations and my own expectations of myself. Because we can get disappointed with ourselves, right? So I need to get rid of all my rule-keeping and my legalism. I need to remember that God sees my self-righteousness, even those things done with good intentions, as filthy rags. This is a hard pill to swallow for a lot of people. The verse there that helps us understand this is Isaiah 64 verse 6. It says, We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. So in our eyes, we display righteous deeds, but in God's eyes, they're filthy rags. So why does God see the good things I do by my own strength as filthy rags? It's because of motivation. My sinful nature is completely selfish, which means that anything I do from my own 
sinful nature, my own human nature, is inherently selfish. It's always going to have a selfish motive. Deep down, there's always going to be a selfish motive. It's always going to be inherently evil or wrong, no matter how it appears externally. This is why God sees even the good things I do by myself as filthy rags. So instead, I need to recognize and embrace God's perfect and holy righteousness, which is freely given to me and has been worked in and through me by the Spirit. And there's a little story that goes along there. There was this guy, he had a son who was on drugs. And he went to the pastor of his church. This guy was an elder in the church. And it's back in America, so no one knows who I'm talking about. And he went to the pastor and he says, Oh, please, please pray for my son. I'm really concerned about him. You know, he's on drugs and I, you know, I just want to get off the drugs. And the pastor looks at this guy, this elder in his church, and he says, Are you really concerned about your son or are you concerned about your own reputation? And he goes, and the, and the elder just went, Oh, yeah, well, you're right. He was more concerned about his own reputation than he was his son. So, Outwardly, it appeared like a really righteous thing to do. Oh, I'm going to pastor to get help from my son. But really, it's because he didn't want his reputation damaged in the church. So it's so easy to have a false motive. And that's why the only time that we ever do anything that's going to please God or be accepted by him is when it's done by his spirit through us. So that was nine benefits of being in Christ. I flew through them. I know. I apologize for that. There's lots there, but that's not the main point of the sermon. I just wanted to add that in. But now I want to come to the prophetic overview. And we've covered most of this before, and it's kind of like revision, but it's really good to see the big picture of this. So what is a type? Well, in the Bible, a type is a picture of something. It represents something. Is prophetic of something. So I want to give you an example first so you understand what the type is. The Passover is a type of Jesus' sacrifice. So the Passover lamb was sacrificed, its blood was put in the doorpost, and the destroyer passed over the houses. It's called the Passover. Well, Jesus died on the cross. His blood was shed. When we appropriate his blood, then God's wrath passes over us. Okay? So the Passover is a type of Jesus' sacrifice. Now, we're going to look at Boaz and Ruth and several other types in this book of Ruth and see how they are types or what they represent. So the first one is Boaz. Who does Boaz represent? Who's he a type of? Jesus, yes. Jesus as our kinsman redeemer. Now, why? Well, he's portrayed as the Lord of the harvest, the owner of the field, a wealthy man, a gracious man, a good man, a generous man, and his name literally means standing in strength. Now, then there's Ruth. Who does Ruth represent in this story? The bride of Christ. Now, why does she represent the bride of Christ? Well, there's a lot here. Firstly, because she was a Moabite. She was cursed and separated from God with no hope and no future. The law said that they could not enter in to God's presence for ten generations, just like the illegitimate birth thing. But Ruth finds favor in the eyes of Boaz. She says in chapter 2, verse 10, How could it be that I, a Moabite, would find grace in your eyes? That was her thing. I'm cursed for ten generations. I'm not allowed to go into your tabernacle. I'm not allowed to worship with you guys. 
How could it be that I will find grace in your eyes? She can't believe that Boaz would be so kind to her. But here's the thing. Where the law shuts us out, grace shows us a way into God's presence. Also, in still talking about Ruth as a type of the church, in chapter 3, verse 3, we read that Ruth was washed, anointed, and clothed with new clothes, just like we have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, anointed by the Holy Spirit, and robed in His righteousness, and also washed by the Word of God. Another application there. And then there's Ruth at Boaz's feet at the threshing floor in chapter 3. So if you take the threshing floor as a picture of judgment, as it often is used in the Old Testament, and we've been through that before as well, Ruth is safe and secure with Boaz at the threshing floor, but she's safe and secure with Boaz. She's with Boaz. Just like the church will be safe and secure with Jesus during the seven-year tribulation period. So we'll be raptured up, and then we'll be with him for that period of time. Now, again, concerning Ruth, Ruth, Boaz spotted her before she spotted him. So as you read through the book, Ruth didn't know about Boaz, but Boaz knew about Ruth. Boaz cared for her. Boaz wanted to be a blessing to her. But it was up to Ruth to respond to his goodness. Boaz waited to see if she would respond to the goodness he was showing her. He left it to her to stay in his field. He invited her to stay in the field. She had to respond to that invitation. He didn't force her into a relationship. And that's how it is with Jesus and us. We must choose to accept his gift of salvation. Now, the next type is the unnamed servant in chapter 2. And we talked about this. He represents the Holy Spirit. Why does he represent the Holy Spirit? Well, the unnamed servant is the one who identifies the bride-to-be. He goes to Boaz and he identifies Ruth to Boaz. He tells Boaz all about Ruth. So he is the one who is involved in linking the bride, who is Ruth, with the bridegroom, who is Boaz. And now why is he unnamed? Because in John 16, Jesus said concerning the Spirit, that when he comes, he will not speak of himself, or not bring glory to himself, but will speak all things concerning me. And that's how it is for today as well. The Holy Spirit is convicting us and drawing us to Jesus. Now, we have the nearer kinsman. Who does the nearer kinsman represent? The law. Yes, the law which held them in bondage. So Boaz could not redeem and marry Ruth until the nearer kinsman released his right to redeem them. Only then could Boaz redeem and marry Ruth. And as we said, the nearer kinsman represents the law. The law was interested in the property, but not the people. Boaz, on the other hand, was interested in the people and not the property. Why couldn't the law, or why didn't the law want to redeem us or why can't it redeem us is because the law is perfect and we're not the law can't help us because we're not perfect like it it can only help us if we're perfect also which came first the law or Jesus the law came first so that's why the law had the first dibs on us now Naomi who's Naomi a type of Israel that's it she represents the nation of Israel well why Just like Naomi was disobedient and left the land and suffered greatly while she was away, Israel was disobedient when they rejected their Messiah and were kicked out of the land in AD 70. And they were in exile for all those years until 1948. And they did suffer greatly. For example, just one example is the Holocaust. 
Now, Naomi didn't come back into the land until Ruth was ready to meet Boaz. So Israel came back into the land in 1948 after almost 2,000 years in exile. And this shows that it's just about time for the church to meet Jesus. The rapture is imminent. It could happen any day, any year now. Because it's got to happen before the second coming of Christ. Israel had to become a nation before Jesus could come back. They become a nation. The second coming is close, which means the rapture is closer. Also, while Naomi was gone, the land was being destroyed by her enemies. As a comparison here, while the Jewish people were gone from the land, from AD 70 to 1948, the land was basically wiped out. It was destroyed. When they went back there, there wasn't much to go back to. Also, in the story, it seems that Boaz and Naomi never meet until the marriage feast. Now, when will Israel meet Jesus today? Well, when Jesus returns with the church at the end of the tribulation period, it's only then that Israel as a nation will say to Jesus, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just to illustrate or to highlight this, I'm going to read Matthew 23, 37-39. This is Jesus talking. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Jesus is predicting there in verse 38 that your house will be left to you desolate. It will be destroyed. You'll be scattered, exiled. And then you will see me no more until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So that'll happen at the end of the tribulation period. The Israelites will fully embrace Jesus as their Messiah. Because at the moment they're still rejecting him. So in this story, Ruth needs Naomi and Naomi needs Ruth. A lot of people think that the church has replaced Israel, but that's not right. Without Naomi, Ruth would never have gone to Bethlehem where she met Boaz. And on the other hand, Naomi knows that there's a man named Boaz, but she doesn't know if he's dead or alive until Ruth comes home and says, guess who I met today? And Naomi goes, oh, yeah, he's a close relative of ours. (laughs) Fancy that. (laughs) So the only way Israel is going to hear about the Messiah is through the church. Ruth is a picture of the church sharing the truth about the Messiah to Israel. And so this is how it works together. Israel learns of the whereabouts or has knowledge of the Messiah, Yeshua or Jesus through the church. But it's equally true that the church learns the ways of Jesus through Israel because we got the scriptures through the people of Israel. Now, I'm just going to finish by quickly emphasizing the most important message of the book, the most important prophetic part, and that is redemption by the kinsman redeemer. This is the main point of the whole book. So, this is it. Okay, This is the whole point of the book of Ruth. It points to Jesus as our kinsman redeemer, who is pictured by Boaz. So what have we learnt about the kinsman redeemer so far? First off, the kinsman redeemer had to be a family member. How did this work? Well, Jesus added humanity to his eternal deity 
so he could be our kinsman and save us. He came and was born as a man. Second one, the kinsman redeemer had the duty of buying family members out of slavery. How does it work for us? Jesus redeemed us from slavery to sin and death. Third, the kinsman redeemer had the duty of buying back land that had been forfeited. Well, Jesus is going to redeem the earth that mankind sold over to Satan in the Garden of Eden. We're going to learn more about that in Revelation, which will start next week. Boaz, as a kinsman redeemer to Ruth, was not motivated by self-interest, but motivated by love for Ruth. How does that picture Jesus? Well, Jesus' motivation for redeeming us is his great love for us. Boaz, as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, had to have a plan to redeem Ruth to himself, or for himself, unto himself. And some might have thought the plan to be foolish, because it seemed like it wasn't going to work at the start. But Jesus also had a plan. And guess what? People think that plan was foolish too. Fancy saving men by dying on a cruel cross. It seems foolish, and the world thinks it's foolish. Yet the plan works, and it's glorious. Boaz, as kinsman redeemer to Ruth, took her as his bride. Guess what? The people Jesus has redeemed, the church, are called his bride. And that's Ephesians 5, 31, 32, and Revelation 21, 9. And lastly, Boaz, as our kinsman redeemer to Ruth, provided a glorious destiny of future for Ruth. And Jesus, as our redeemer, provides a glorious future for us. So basically, it all comes back to the idea of our kinsman redeemer. This is why he became a man. Our saviour must be a kinsman, that means related to us. He must be a relative. And he must be able to redeem. He needs to be perfect. So I just want to ask a couple of questions. Why couldn't God send an angel from heaven to save us? An angel is perfect. It's a perfect sacrifice. What's wrong with that? Not a family member, not a close relative, not related. So an angel can't do it, all right? What about Jesus? If he didn't come as a man, could Jesus save us? He's perfect. But he's not a relative of us, is he? He's not human. He's got to be human. Mm. So that wouldn't work either. What about a great prophet or a priest? Could they save us? And they are our kinsmen. They're related to us. What's the problem there? Ah, they're not perfect. So, the only one who can save us is the perfect God-man. So Jesus, the eternal God who added humanity to his eternal deity, can be both the kinsman and the redeemer for mankind. He alone is the saviour of the world. He is the lamb that was slain, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And this is why it's so important that we understand that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And it's also important that we understand that when people reject either Jesus' deity or his humanity, they are rejecting salvation. They are rejecting Jesus as their kinsman redeemer, their Goel. And I'm just going to finish with Isaiah 54. It's an Old Testament verse that talks about God being our kinsman redeemer. It's beautiful. So Isaiah 54, 4-8, it says, Fear not, 
you will no longer live in shame. Do not be afraid, there is no more disgrace for you. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of widowhood. Can you relate that to what you're learning in Ruth? Pretty cool, eh? For your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, literally Goel or kinsman redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. Verse 6. For the Lord has called you back from your grief, as though you were a young wife abandoned by her husband, says your God. For a brief moment I abandoned you, but with great compassion I will take you back. In a burst of anger I turned my face away for a little while, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer, Goel or Kinsman Redeemer. So the conclusion, from eternity God planned to bring Ruth and Boaz together, it's all part of his plan, and to make Bethlehem his entrance point for the coming of Jesus as our one true Kinsman Redeemer, fully God and fully man. So what do we need to do? What's our responsibility? Well, Ruth had to leave Moab and go to Bethlehem, right? So we need to make that step of faith and we need to repent, which is like Ruth going from Moab to Bethlehem. Leave the world behind. That's repentance. And we need to believe and ask God to save us from our sins. That's why this is an awesome book. So let's pray. Father, thank you for the amazing amount of truth in this book, the amazing encouragement that it gives us. Lord, help us to take the time to really dig into this, to contemplate what this means, Lord, what it means to be in Christ. Like Ruth was now in the home of Boaz. She belonged to Boaz. She was at home with Boaz. We are now home with you. Lord, there's so many benefits. It is such a big thing that you've done for us, for you to be our kinsman redeemer, our goel our close relative. And Father, we thank you for what you've done. Help us to take the time to meditate on you, to put you first, to return the love that you've shown to us. That's all we need to do. And to turn our backs on the world and choose the things that you love instead of the world loves. And Father, just yeah, fill us with your spirit. Empower us to live the life that you want us to live, Father, because that's your promise. You never ask us to do anything that you won't enable us to do or empower us to do by your spirit living within us. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So I thank you for the book of Ruth, and we just pray that you'll help us to keep this in our minds as we go through our daily life, and we can remember that your view of us is one of grace and mercy. You'd love us. You can't wait to hang out with us. You can't wait for us to spend time with you. You just really long to spend time with us. We bring you pleasure when we do that. So help us to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.